I'm so excited to see this year new names, hundreds of them I'm praying, of people who have experienced the life-changing power of the gospel and coming into a saving relationship with him. Would you join me in that prayer and be part of sharing our story with the world? I'm praying that next weekend, as we have united here, that people will come, that students would come, teenagers would know the grace of Jesus and follow him through professions of faith. One of the remarkable elements of the ministry of Jesus, especially his public ministry, which only lasted three and a half years, is the number of one-on-one conversations that Jesus had with people. One-on-one conversations that Jesus had with people. If you and I were to plan out the three and a half years of ministry, we, in our Western mind, would make it as widespread as it possibly could be because we're all about efficiency, right? We may squeeze in a few uh, meet and greet with the most popular and famous or influential people, but we would try to make this ministry of Jesus as widespread as it possibly can be. So we would pack it out with tours and shows and public showing so that as many people as we possibly could could come to encounter Jesus. But Jesus prioritized personal impact more than corporate efficiency. And across the four Gospels, Jesus, in his three and a half years of ministry, had about 40 one-on-one conversations with people. 40 one-on-one encounters and conversations with people. Not very efficient, is that? Is Jesus talked to these individuals, what's remarkable is that oftentimes he had to go through extreme measures just to get to them. He had to derail a trip or go an extended way just to meet one person. And he did that not because they were famous or could add to his reputation. He did that because they were broken. They were in need of forgiveness. They were grieving. They were sad. They were troubled. They were curious. They needed Jesus. So he prioritized meeting even just one person, no matter what it took. That's how Jesus pursued people in his ministry. Today, as we come to the end of our Pursuit series, we're going to look at one of those one-on-one encounters. The story is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and this is the moment where Jesus has a one-on-one encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. The woman at the well. Now, if you've been in church for some time or have been a Christ follower, you've most likely read the story in John 4. You've probably heard many sermons about this passage of Scripture. Maybe right now you're thinking, oh, I totally know this story. The woman at the well, John 4, I know this story. But here's what I'm asking you. Would you take a look at the story with a set of fresh eyes? See, the thing is, God's word doesn't change, but you've changed. You've never been to this moment in your life before. You've never been this version of yourself before. So every time we come to a passage of scripture, every time we read a story in God's word, we had to pray, God, speak to me. Like if it was the first time ever. In fact, would you do that right now? Would you open your heart and say, God, speak to me. Give me a lens to see this in a different way than I've ever seen it. Speak to me, Holy Spirit. My heart is open, either in this room or online. My mind is attuned to what you want to say. We want to hear from you, God. In this moment, will you speak, even through a familiar story, in John 4. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to end our series with this story because it is one of the clearest pictures of what we've been saying all along in this series. That our clarion call this year in pursuing the community is that because we have been pursued by a loving God, we lovingly pursue those within our reach. Because God, a loving God, a gracious Father has been pursuing us and we have been pursued by Him. We now join Him on the pursuit of others. And in this story of the woman at the well, we see this more clearer than many, any, most of the stories in the scripture, how she was pursued by Jesus, how quickly she became a pursuer of people. So with this lens, let's jump into John 4. John 4, verse 3 onwards, reads like this. He, meaning Jesus, left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. What a profound picture of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, worn out, exhausted physically, 
sat down by the well. If you were to enter into John's story with an iPhone, John tells us that Jesus is on a journey from Judea to Galilee. And so if you were to pull up your iPhone in the story and say, Siri, take me from Judea to Galilee, Siri would open up two options for you, two routes that you can take. The first one would be a three-day journey going from Judea to Galilee. Going through the town of Samaria, it would take you three days to get to Galilee. The second route available for you would be a five-day journey, a five-day walk that would go around Samaria onto Galilee. Now, if you're like me and we're efficient, we want to get there quickly, what would we do? We would take the three-day hike. We would choose the three-day journey rather than the five-day journey. But did you know that in first century, just about every single Jew, they would opt for the five-day journey rather than the three-day one. They would choose the longer journey, the five-day one. And it's not because they were trying to get their steps goal for the day or their move goal accomplished. They purposely wanted to avoid this town called Samaria. They would do whatever it took, even extending their trip by two days of walking, just to get around this town called Samaria. Why is that? I don't mean to... Uh, insult your intelligence, but the Samaritans lived in Samaria, as you can imagine. The Samaritans lived there. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, for centuries, there's been, at least for seven centuries, there's been a long history of hostility and hatred between Jews and the Samaritans. Hostility and hatred between these two people groups. See, what happened was seven years before Jesus was born, the most powerful, most gruesome, terrorizing nation in the world was Assyria. Now, Syria invaded Israel, and they had a strategy. They would deport some of the Jews out of Israel and keep the others in Israel. And what they would do for the next few decades was they would intermarry. Assyrians would marry the Jews and create a new offspring called Samaritans. So when all the Jews that have been deported come back home, what do they see? They see a new mixed group. And in their eyes, they were religiously polluted ethnically compromised. They were culturally deplorable. They were considered to be ceremonially unclean. They called them the half-breeds, the offspring of our enemy, who now marry the Jewish people. And now this town was filled with Assyrian uh, traditions and festivals. Jews did everything it took to avoid this town. For centuries, for centuries they fought each other. They fought and went to war with each other. But by the time that Jesus is on the scene, they're not fighting each other. They're just avoiding each other. They're doing whatever it took to avoid each other. Don't mess with us. We won't mess with you. Don't talk to us. We won't talk to you. You travel on your roads. We travel on our roads. And as long as we don't meet, we're good. That worked for a little while until Jesus showed up. Jesus didn't know the rules, did he? He just messed everything up. So Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, goes straight to Samaria. He's in a place surrounded by people he shouldn't be surrounded by. Jesus was not the one to keep status quo. No, when he saw racism, when he saw any form of prejudice, he would directly confront it head on. He was not interested in keeping fake peace. He wanted to make real peace in the world. And he calls on us as followers to do the same in our day. Jesus goes to Samaria. John actually tells us he had to go through Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. Well, anyone with a map would know that Jesus didn't actually have to go through Samaria. He could have chosen the alternate route. This is not a physical imperative to go through Samaria. This is a spiritual imperative. This is a personal imperative from Jesus. He had to go through Samaria because there was a person he needed to meet. There was a person he was pursuing, and it took him on this journey to meet this person. John introduces who Jesus was pursuing. Verse 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Here is a person on the mind of Jesus, on the heart of Jesus, a Samaritan woman. John doesn't give us her name, and it's not because her name didn't matter. Oftentimes, scripture writers will leave a name out, which is a greater invitation to put our name in the place. It's an invitation to be a part of the story, and to join her in this conversation. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. 
Unfortunately, even today, there are several gender opportunity gaps in the world in terms of opportunity and income, and it's tragic. I pray that one day that's obliterated. In the first century, the gender opportunity gap was even far more severe, tragic, blatant, and unfortunately, widely accepted as normal and appropriate. Men and women were not treated equally by any measure. Jewish men literally saw Samaritan women as less valuable than a donkey. That's why they saw them. In fact, Jewish rabbis were not allowed to speak to women in public. They couldn't even speak to their own wife in public for a prolonged period of time because it was seen as a diversion of time that they could spend to study the Torah, and therefore it was a great evil. And here goes Jesus again. What does he do? He begins to speak to a Samaritan woman. See, everyone in that story, in that narrative, has seen her either as a Samaritan or a woman or both. But Jesus saw her simply as a person. He didn't care who she was on the outside or who she was on the inside. Nothing would deter him. He saw her soul. He saw a need that only he could meet. And there was nothing that could take his eyes away from her. He saw her and began a conversation. Interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, this is the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody. The longest conversation with this Samaritan woman. In all the Gospels of all the women that Jesus speaks to, he has the longest conversation with this Samaritan woman. Why? Because this was not just a photo obscene. Jesus intentionally, lovingly was pursuing her. He saw her for her and cared about her. This woman, in response to Jesus asking her for a drink, responds in this way, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only are the initial readers of John appalled by what Jesus is doing, this woman herself is appalled that Jesus, a Jew, would have a conversation and ask her for a drink. This is not kosher. This is not appropriate. My ethnicity, my race, my class, my story should keep you away from me. But Jesus would not stay away. He was pursuing her. Jesus goes on in reply and says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, if you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Give me something more. Give me this living water. I'm tired of having to come here over and over again. He told her, go call your husband and come back. The story goes on. She replied, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with, or the man that you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. What an interesting conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well. I've got to offer a confession to you. For the longest time, when I read this part of the story, I always assumed that this woman in the story was a sexually promiscuous woman. But a few months ago, Pastor Steve Frizzell sent me an article that led me to another trail of resources that changed the way I view her now. I see her in a very different light. The Bible here does say that she's been married five times and that she's not with a man who is her husband. So initially reading this text, we were led to believe she's quote-unquote a loose woman. 
a serial divorcee, someone immoral, someone who has chosen this life on her own. But actually, when you interpret this text with the lens of first, country, first century culture and norm, you'll begin to see her in actually a very different light. It's true, she has been married five times, which is a high number of marriages. But there are multiple reasons why she's in the predicament she's in right now. See, in the first century, women were given in marriage to men far older than them. Usually as a teenage girl, they were given in marriage. And often the men would die earlier. In battle or catching a disease on the field, they would die. And it was very likely that women would have been made a widow multiple times because their older husband had died. That's very likely in this story that this woman has gone through at least a few, maybe not all five, but at least a few scenarios where she has become a widow because her older husband has died. In first century, divorce was very common. It was rampant and common. It was so easy for a man to divorce his wife. I mean, she could literally burn dinner, and he could divorce her with no notice, no warning. He could send her away. It was easy for a man to divorce his wife, but it was impossible for a woman to divorce her husband. It was illegal for a woman to initiate a divorce. In very rare circumstances, a woman could initiate a divorce if she had an older member of her family become an advocate for her. That was rarely done, but that was the only way. And surely no one in her family would advocate it five times. It's very unlikely that she initiated this divorce. And if she was a publicly immoral person, guess what? No one would ever want to marry her. The five men have married this woman. Later on in the story, we read that she, when she realized who Jesus is, she ran to town, ran into her neighborhood, people who knew her very well, and began to tell them about this Jesus and invited them to come and see the one who could be the Messiah. And you know what happened? They believed her. They listened and believed her story. Why? Because she still held credibility in their eyes. She had tremendous influence in her own town. What about our current situation of living with someone who's not our husband? Well, does that have to be moral? Not necessarily. In the first century, if a man wanted to be legally bound to a woman and not make her his wife, he could. The official status was called a concubine. This was the case, especially when older men who didn't want to share their possessions with a wife or their inheritance. Maybe they had multiple sons who wanted all the inheritance. And if they wanted a wife but not share their inheritance, they could have a concubine. Or if a woman was unable to give the proper dowry necessary for a marriage, she could become a concubine and not a wife. This was so common in the first century to be a concubine. You're legally bound, but no possessions, no inheritance. And when Jesus states the fact that she is living with someone who's not her husband, you notice how Jesus doesn't judge her? He doesn't correct her. We've judged her. Jesus doesn't. Later on in John 8, when Jesus meets the woman who was caught in adultery, he tells her, go and sin no more. He corrects her lovingly. He corrects her, but no such words are given here. Because Jesus is simply stating the facts of what she has gone through. So whether she has lost five husbands because they died or they abandoned her, what is true, though, is that she has gone from one devastation after another. She has gone from one moment of pain after another. In first century, her survival would have totally depended on her legal association with a man. On their own, women had no rights, no opportunity, no way to earn an income, no, no abilities on their own at all. All they had, all they could earn was directly correlated to being married or legally a concubine. So imagine for every one of the five husbands that either died or left her or abandoned her, every time they exited the scene, she's thrown out back to the streets. No way to care for herself. She is desperate. She's downtrodden. She has been disregarded, dismissed. Jesus tells her, or she, Jesus calls out her past and current marital status to let us know that she has had an incredible, difficult life. 
a horrible life, much of which was not really her choice. Disregarded, dismissed, trying to fend for her survival. This is her story. This is the pain with which she comes. She talks about the well of Jacob being deep. Let me tell you, her soul well was even deeper. Her emotional well was deep. Her spiritual well was deep. Jesus is physically exhausted and worn out, but she is emotionally worn out. She's gone through disappointment after disappointment, agony after agony, trying to figure out, how am I going to survive? And now, not only did she lose her last five husbands, she's legally bound to a man who can't or won't commit to her fully. What shame in that. Her well is deep. Jesus needed little water, but she really needed living water. We see here that she's astute. Theologically, she has this conversation And that's not a diversion from her past. It is the deepest need of her soul. She wants to know God. She wants to know the Messiah. Because it's remarkable in all of this horrible journey that she's been on, she's still a God seeker. She's still longing for the Messiah to come. She is longing to meet her Messiah. So Jesus does not hold her in suspense any longer. He begins to reveal to her fully who he is. Next verse says it like this. Verse 23, actually, but an hour is coming, says Jesus, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Look at this moment. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I'm the one you're longing for. The one in front of you, the one you're speaking to, is the one you have been waiting for. So often in the scriptures, in the gospels, Jesus would hide who he truly was until the end of his ministry. It's the messianic secret. He wouldn't disclose who he was. But here in Samaria, speaking to a Samaritan woman, he fully discloses who he is. So that she can believe in him to be the Messiah. Interestingly enough, in Samaria, they had their own liturgy. They had their own expectation of who the Messiah would be. He was called the Tahib, the coming Messiah. And part of the liturgy that was read had this line in it that when the Messiah shows up, water will flow from his buckets. That was the lens through which they viewed the expected Messiah. That when he comes, water will flow from his buckets. So Jesus comes to Samaria at the well, knowing exactly what she's been longing for, hoping for, what the entire town has been waiting for. He says, I will give you living water. I will give you living water. But this offer is far better than what she expected. She will not just receive living water. She will possess living water. In such a way that it will never run out. Who Jesus for her becomes and who he is to us is what the prophet Isaiah prophesied several centuries ago. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah would say, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water. Exactly what Jesus said, a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jesus says, I'm your living water. When you have of me, not only do you come to the living water, the living water comes to you inside of you so that like a spring of water whose water never fails, your soul is replenished. The Samaritan woman sees the words of Jesus, hears him, says, I believe. She places her faith totally in Jesus, the Messiah. She believes he is the Messiah. Another fascinating part of the story, right before John 4, you have John 3. And in John 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus one-on-one. Nicodemus And the Samaritan woman couldn't be further apart on the spectrum of race and pedigree and traditions and gender. They couldn't be further apart. 
Nicodemus is a person that you would think would immediately come to faith in Christ. He has spent his whole life studying the law, studying who the Messiah would be. But as the story goes, Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, leaves at night doubting. But this Samaritan woman, a downtrodden Samaritan woman, leaves in broad daylight believing. He left doubting. She left believing. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith and where you are in your soul, but if you feel like an unlikely candidate for grace, Jesus is coming for you. He is pursuing you. She would have said, I was the most unlikely candidate for grace. I didn't grow up in the town that others did. I didn't grow up with the story that others did. I didn't have the traditions that others did. I was an unlikely candidate of grace. But Jesus came pursuing her. He comes to the unlikeliest of us and reveals himself to us. Whether you're in the room or you're online, if you've got a soul that's thirsty, if you've got a heart that's living in scorched places. Jesus offers himself to you as the only living water. Maybe you've come to some well. I don't know what that is for you. Some place of temporary satisfaction. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a website. Maybe it's a place you keep going to back and forth, hoping for a short-term thrill. Wherever that might be for you, Jesus comes into that moment and meets you as you are and unashamedly declares that he is better he is better. Your soul is thirsty. Jesus is a living water that is offering himself to you when God made us. He made us so that we would never be satisfied apart from him. Because he is our greatest good, he is also our greatest longing. Now there's a longing in your heart and your soul. You've tried everything. You've looked at everything under the sun. And you're still feeling empty. It's because you cannot ever be satisfied Apart from Christ, the living God, the living water. And when you come to Jesus, you don't merely come to a well. The well comes in you. He comes in you. And from you is a spirit of life, a spring of life that is ever flowing. From within you, he replenishes you. He nurtures you. He nourishes you. He quenches your thirst. He won't let your thirst be banished because he wants to meet your thirst. He wants to fulfill your thirst. He is the ever-flowing fountain from deep within. He wells up inside of us, and he overflows outside of us. From within, he wells up, and he overflows if you're thirsty this morning for meaning, for purpose, we offer you Jesus, Christ crucified and risen. Your soul will never thirst. He is living water. Not only does this woman at the well believe in Jesus, she quickly becomes an evangelist. She senses the pursuit of Jesus. and She doesn't go to seminary to try to tell her, Others about Jesus. She doesn't seek the approval of the local rabbi or priest. No, she immediately goes on a pursuit. Notice what happens. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Oh, what a moment! With a story, she begins to run and tells everybody in their neighborhood, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of Moses and all of the reasons and even excuses that he had of why God could not use him. And one of those excuses or reasons he had was, I don't know what to say. What will I say if they ask me these questions? What will I say? I've heard from several of you, that's, been the number one greatest barrier to sharing your faith. I don't know what to say. What if I get stumped on a question? But I think in this story, we found this remarkable, hopeful message. See, this woman, she knew theology. She, could, she was arguing with Jesus. But when she goes to tell people about Jesus, she doesn't lead with theological arguments. She leads with her story. She leads 
with her story. She says, just come and see the one who's changed me. You know me. I know who I was. But come and see the person who's transformed me, who knew me, who told me everything about myself. She leads with her story. She went to town not to explain Jesus, but to invite people to experience Jesus. I want you to catch that. She wasn't trying to explain everything about Jesus. She was asking people to come with her and to experience Jesus. So often we think we have to explain everything about Jesus and everything about our faith. No, no, no. Sharing our faith is simply inviting people to experience the Jesus who's changed you. To experience the one who's transformed you. You used to be dead, but now you're alive. Your heart used to be cold. Now you are flaming with passion and meaning and purpose in life. Come see a man that's changed me. I'm not here to try to explain everything. I just want you to experience him. The truth is that you already do this all the time. You do it really well. We're constantly inviting people to experience what we enjoyed. How quickly do you leave a Yelp review for a restaurant you loved? A Google review for somebody who took good care of you. Like if you went to an event and you thought it was amazing, next year you're bringing six people with you. A few weeks ago, Avery and I got to go to our first daddy-daughter dance, and it was amazing. I've already recruited six people to come with me next year. <laughs> because by design, we share what we enjoy, don't we? We share kids' pictures and grandkids' pictures because we enjoy them. We, by design, share what we enjoy That's all pursuing a community is. We share what we enjoy. We share the one we cherish and treasure. We say to people, "Uh, you don't have to believe me, but I just want to tell you my story. Here's how Christ has saved me, how he's changed me. This is the most irrefutable sermon you'll ever have. It's your story. That's what she did. Here's my story. Come and see. I'm not here to try to explain everything. I just want to invite you to experience Jesus. I want to give you homework this week. Write out your story. Your story in three minutes. What would it be? It's actually not complicated. It doesn't have to be long and polished. This is your story. Here's who I was before I met Jesus. My life before Jesus. Here's how Jesus met me. Each and every one of you, if you're in Christ, you have a well moment where Jesus made himself known and real in such an undeniable way to you. Here's how you met Jesus. Here's what my life with Jesus looks like. I'm not perfect, but here is my life with Jesus. Just identify one word for each of these. What's one word that would describe your life before Jesus? For me, it was the word duty and obligation. Feeling like I had to perform and please God. It left me exhausted and drained. I met Jesus through reading the letter of Ephesians. And the word that grabbed my heart was grace, saved by grace. He's been pursuing me before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's where Jesus met me at my well. First year of college, sat up all night for three, four hours from midnight to four in the morning, marveling in the grace of God's pursuit. My life with Jesus is a life of freedom. I'm not perfect, but I'm free. I don't have to follow him, but I get to follow him. It's full of joy, not duty, but gratitude and thanksgiving. You've got a story. It's a good one. It's a powerful one. This is what changes your friends. This is what changes your coworkers, your neighbors. It's your story, just if we're willing to share it with people. This woman of the well ran to tell her story. And notice what happened as a result. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. What if she had not gone? How many would have missed out on meeting Jesus? And in fact, Jesus camped out for a few days because she went and brought people to experience Jesus and a revival broke out. She paved the way for Philip later on and for the disciples to carry the great commission from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth to proclaim Christ. She was the first missionary. She was the evangelist. But what if she had not gone? She was radically transformed and immediately sent. She said, I have enjoyed him. He's changed my life. I've got to go. I've got to share him 
with the world by simply sharing my story. I think about how in this story, she came to the well with jars of clay for water. She came with jars for water. She might have traveled a long way to get there. She needed water. Water was valuable to her. That's why she comes at noon. She needed water. This is where she comes every day. This was meaningful and needed for her. But when she met the living water, what did she do? She dropped the jars of water and left. To put you at ease, I'm not going to drop these, so don't worry. <laughs> but she did, didn't she? She dropped the very water jug she came with that would have met her temporary need of thirst. And she left with something far greater, the living water. She left these jars of water and went to tell people about Jesus. Wonder what jars you're unwilling to let go of. What jars you're unwilling to lay down? What do you consider to be more valuable than taking your next step of faith? Your next step in obeying Jesus? What do you cherish more than the life-changing presence of Jesus in your life? Maybe it's a reputation you're holding on to. Maybe it's your temporary well, your temporary sustenance. You're used to it. It's familiar. Maybe no one else knows about it. This is the well you keep coming into, and you have told yourself, it's been there for me before. It's worked for a little while, but you know deep down, you keep having to come back because you keep getting thirsty again. You keep having this longing, this insatiable longing that cannot be met with anything physical. Jesus is saying, do you want living water? Do you want a forever satisfaction? Do you want something from within that overflows and you will never grow weary and thirsty again. If so, he invites you to throw down your jars. Maybe your jar is filled with insecurities and inadequacies of why you cannot be used by God. All the excuses that you've said to God, I cannot share my faith because of these reasons. Maybe it's fears. Maybe it's something else. Well, you trust Jesus enough to let your jar down. Say, God, I got to go. And tell my story. Whatever the outcome is, I'm just going to trust the power of Jesus to speak through me. Jesus at the well sits down at noon, worn out. But he still saw this woman. Not as a Samaritan, not as a woman, but as a person. He saw her at the well. This week, who will you see at the well? Who will you see? Who you see down the hall from you at work, in your classroom, in your neighborhood, at a PTA meeting? Who will you see at the well that Jesus is sending to you? Will you judge them based on who they're on the outside or on the inside? Will you judge them by the tone of their skin or their story or their upbringing or their lifestyle that you might disagree with? Or will you move toward them intentionally as Jesus did, overcoming every single, mar every single barrier? Carrying the spiritual imperative, I got to share, I got to go, I got to start a conversation, I got to do something out of the ordinary that tells them I care. Who do you see by the well? Who have you ignored? The God is saying, this is the person I'm calling you to. Who do you see by the well? Tammy and Ken shared about the tree of new life out in the lobby. Those are people that God's placed on the heart of our church members to be praying. And those that have come to faith in Christ, we celebrate their new life by placing their name on the tree of new life. But you know what this wall represents? This is another tangible thing we have. It's the names of people we're still praying for who yet to have known Jesus, who have yet to enter into a relationship these are names of people on the heart of our church members. Lost people, far from God people. People who are still confused, still broken, still hurting. People who are still waiting at the well for somebody to share Christ with them. There are hundreds of names on this wall. The way we're going to close service is I'm going to invite you to come and pray for them. 
Come and kneel down here in the front. If you can't get here, kneel wherever you are. Pick a name and begin to pray. Let's call out to God on behalf of these people who are without a relationship with Jesus. These individuals who are headed to an eternity apart from Christ. They will spend eternity somewhere. And God has placed you, he's placed your friends, he's placed us in the vicinity of their reach so that through us, we could share who Jesus is. Maybe you're going to come today and there's somebody on your mind, on your heart. You can grab one of these wooden chips and write a name and place it in the wall. Who do you see by the well? And I'm praying that from now on, during our times of worship or pre-service or after service, people will just make it a habit to come and pray for people in the wall. Names in the wall. People God is longing to save. People he may be sending you to share your story with. I gotta tell you, I know the last few years have seen like an unprecedented few years. But I think God is setting us up for a revival in the world. There is an awakening that God wants to bring in the lives of those who are far from him without a relationship. But before we see an awakening in the world, we must see a revival in the church. A renewed passion to share Christ. An urgency to say, God, use me and my story. Use those within my reach. I don't want to just come and go from church. I want to be the church. I don't want to just play church. I want to be used by God. We get one life to live. God, use me to pursue those in my reach. We're going to give you a few moments, and we're going to end in a song and prayer, but I want to invite you at this time. Would you come and just kneel for people? Stand in the gap for somebody, a name. Just take it to the throne of God. We're often so good at telling God what's on our heart, but in this moment of prayer, will you ask God what's on your heart? Who's on your heart? Father, baptize us with a sense of urgency for those on the heart of God. Come, let's pray, let's kneel, let's grab a name, let's put a name on the wall, and let's go to God together and pray for those he is pursuing.
Maybe you're here today and you are the one at the well that Jesus has come to meet. You're hoping to hide, you're hoping to be unnoticed, but Jesus sees you. 
If today, whether here in person or online, you wanna say, God, I need you to be living water. I'm thirsty, I'm dry, I'm in a scorched place. Just kneel where you are. He'll meet you there. Make an altar wherever you are. Just ask God to rescue you. Say, help me, Jesus, rescue me. I believe that you are the savior of the world. You are the Messiah. Right in that moment, he embraces you. This is a week that our nation is going to celebrate love in so many ways. But no greater love than he who laid down his life for you. Let's pray together. Father, fill us with your heart, your love, your pursuit. Thank you for the ways that you have met us in whatever well we came to, you encountered us. You overcame every barrier. You knocked down every wall. You tore down every lie. And you came for us. Now in response, Father, will you send us out to neighbors and friends and family members and strangers? Because we've got a story to share. Not only is Christ risen, we are risen with him. God, we have a past. We have a future. All because Jesus met us at the well. You transformed us, and now you're sending us out. Father, will you revive us in our heart with a renewed sense of love for you and for your word, with a renewed commitment to share Christ, to simply share what we enjoy. And for that to happen, Father, may we enjoy you more. May we treasure you more. May we grow in wonder and amazement of who you are so that we can't help but share you with the world. We're not obligated to, but we get to. Love compels us. Grace moves us. Mercy motivates us to share this Jesus. So may we this week see people by the well that you are asking us to invite into a life-changing experience with Jesus. We love you. We thank you. Send us out as your church. To every place we go, just as you did this remarkable woman at the well. And so many came to know Christ through her. Don't pass us by. Allow us to be found faithful. In every moment, you craft for us to meet people as they are. In Jesus' name we pray. The church said, amen, amen. Can we just give Jesus a thanksgiving today? Amen. Thank you for joining us today online or in this room. And we invite you, if God is stirring in your heart a next step, maybe to make Christ the Lord of your heart, to be baptized, to join our church, we invite you into the prayer room. If there's people that are heavy on your heart, will you let us pray with you? If you've came in with a deep need in your soul, we want to pray with you. Today we are praying that God blesses you. He sends you out by the power of His Spirit. And we can see a move of God like we've never seen before in our region, in our city. Come awaken our city, God, for your cause and your glory. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.